It's a great privilege to be out with everyone worshiping our God this morning. And it is a humbling and awesome privilege at that. If you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. That's where we're going to start here in a minute. As most of you know, we've been studying the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights in the auditorium class. And in many ways, the book of Ephesians is a very encouraging, a very upbuilding kind of a book. And it leaves the impression that the Ephesians had a lot of things figured out. But that's not the last time we read about a church in Ephesus, because we see them again in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, John writes this letter to the seven churches of Asia. And it kind of leads with a personal message to each of the churches, the first of which is the letter to the Ephesians. And as we'll see, the review here is mixed. There are some positive things and there are some very scary critiques. And so for a few minutes this morning, we're going to look at the message and we're going to focus on the church of Ephesus. How can we copy their successes And of course, how can we avoid their failures? I think it's very important first off to establish that this message, that these words are not John's. They are, let's look at verse one. Revelation chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So who is this one? This is the author of this letter. And while we don't have the time to get into it this morning, in chapter one, there's a vision of this author. And the vision describes him as a man, but the man is also a priest. But the man is also very powerful. He has the keys to Hades, which means the power over death. But he's also described As God, borrowing language from Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 43 and elsewhere. And of course, we know that this means that our author is Jesus. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is our Lord. We see that Jesus is the true author of this vision. But now let's turn our attention to a second for the, the seven lampstands and seven stars that are emphasized here in verse 1. They're associated with Jesus in both of these visions. And let's actually read chapter 1, verse 20, because it gives us the explanation for these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these seven stars and seven lampstands we see are the people of God, these churches. And for the sake of time this morning, I really don't have uh, the ability to get into the difference between the churches and the angels of the churches And I'm very glad that I don't have the time to do that. But as we can, uh, let's just suffice to say that Jesus is with his people in some sort of overreaching cosmic way that we can see in the stars, but then also in a very tangible, close way with the lampstands. So this Jesus, this man, this priest, God himself 
is walking in the midst of his people, in the midst of these churches. He's with them. And that can be a good thing because that means he's familiar with their struggles. He knows what they've been going through, but can also be a scary thing because he knows their failures. He knows where they've come up short. And we'll see both that comfort and that threat, if you want to say it that way, in this vision. So let's get right into this vision and see what the Lord Jesus had to say about the church in Ephesus. And we'll start with the positive first here, because that's what the vision starts with. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And I'm going to go on and add verse 6 in there too, because I think it speaks to a very similar thing. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We know that the churches of Asia, Ephesus included in that, We're going through persecution at the time of the book of Revelation. Not necessarily in the way that we normally think of it, where there was an empire-wide, every Christian is getting jailed and put to death kind of persecution. But I think in some ways it's a persecution that we can almost relate to. Let me describe it for you a little bit. If you were a Christian in Ephesus, or one of these other six cities... You're going to face large pressure from the world around you. And that pressure is to be like them, to assimilate. If you stand for Christ in that society, you're not going to be understood. At the very least, you're going to be mocked and kind of made fun of. But it's likely that the world will react so strongly and so poorly that they're going to try to beat you into submission And this could come from simple things like being unwelcome at common social gatherings. You're going to be isolated from a lot of your friends and from much of the culture around you. If you own a business, you won't be allowed to join any of their trade organizations or partnerships because you're going to have to choose between God and your business. And I think in a lot of ways that sounds kind of familiar to some situations that we can face today. And I think that's why studying these churches can come with great benefit to us. Because in some ways, our situation mirrors their own. And we can see great application to these visions in us and in our walk with God out in the world. And in Ephesus, they've shown great endurance and perseverance against the world. They haven't let it compromise them. They've stuck to God's word. No matter what the world said, they've heeded the warning. Paul wrote to them, uh, probably this same very congregation of God's people, in Ephesians 6.13, where he said, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. 
we might call the Ephesians doctrinally sound. I think we can safely say that the evil day that Paul warned them about has come. They are in the midst of it. They've dealt with these awful pressures from out in the world. The rest of the book of Revelation makes that perfectly clear. And they've dealt with the Nicolaitans in verse 6. And while we don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were... It's pretty safe to say that they were a group of Christians that were teaching false doctrine from the inside of the church. So this evil day came. They dealt with adversity and threat from the inside and from the out. And what did they do? They heed the warning. They stood firm with the belt of truth. They heard the world's teachings. They heard the world's false teachings and they rejected them. They've stuck with the gospel and God's word. And may Jesus always say that of this congregation. I pray that he does. So that's the good. They've stood firm in the truth of God's word. And if the vision ended here, we kind of give a little fist pump and say, good job, Ephesus. Keep up the good work. But the vision doesn't end here. We can see that in verses 4 and 5. If you'll read Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 with me. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the works that you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So they've left their first love. And we have to ask, what is their first love? Because it's not explicitly said in the text. And I've heard two options kind of presented over the years. I've heard that this love might be their love for God. Or this love might be their love for mankind in general. And let's think about both of those for a second. What would it look like if they had fallen out of their love with God? They wouldn't be excited to come to worship. Because if you don't love God, what's the point in coming to worship? They either show up and just kind of absentmindedly fill a pew or they don't come at all. If they had fallen out of love with God, they would feel little motivation to participate in worship or fellowship or serving opportunities. If they had fallen out of love with God, they wouldn't be involved in evangelism or bringing people to him. Because why would they when they don't have the desire to be with God themselves? If they have fallen out of love with God, their tongue will get harsher, their actions more evil, and their heart will get harder. It's an awful picture, especially for people who profess to be Christians. Well, what would it look like if they had fallen out of love with their fellow man? Well, they probably wouldn't be excited to come to worship. They don't want to see the brethren here. They don't want them prying too close or getting too close to them. They either show up right on time or they leave right after service so they don't have to speak to anyone. Or maybe they don't even come at all. If they had fallen out of love with their fellow man, they would feel little motivation to participate in worship or serving opportunities or fellowship. If they had fallen out of love with their fellow man, they wouldn't be involved in evangelism or bringing people to God. Because why would they be when they don't care about the people around them? 
If they had fallen out of love with their fellow man, their tongue will get harsher, their actions more evil, and their heart will get harder. In many ways, it's the same picture. If you've stopped loving your brother, you've stopped loving God. And if you've stopped loving God, you can't love your brother in a true, perfect way. 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21 says it in a way that maybe we're a little more familiar with. 1 John 4 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And, the, and the, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I guess in some ways this is all to say their first love can be God or mankind because in many ways it has the same result. And I think this first love imagery is particularly powerful when we talk about the group here at Ephesus. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 19. And Acts chapter 19 talks about some of the early work that happened in Ephesus. Let's look for now at Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And he, that is Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that... All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So in two years and three months, or however the timeline works there, about that, all of Asia had heard the word of the gospel through the work of Ephesus. And I do mean through the work of Ephesus, because yes, we might be tempted to read that since Paul was there, it says that Paul taught the gospel to all Asia while he was in Ephesus. And I'm sure he had a great hand in that work. But let me suggest to you that that is an improper reading. Because there were a lot of people in the province of Asia. I don't think we think about that most of the time. But there were millions of people there. 10 to 15 million people is the best guess. So let's just say that most heard the gospel. Let's just say that 50% of Asia heard the gospel. I think probably more did. But let's just say it was 50%. Do you think that in two years or three months or whatever it is, Paul personally told five to eight million people about the gospel? And we would say, eh, prob- probably not. No, I think instead we have to concede that Ephesus was a group that was strong in evangelism, at least in the early points of their work. They were caring. One could say they were loving. They loved God and their fellow man enough that they desired them to be saved, and you could see the fruits in their work of evangelism. But at some point, they left that work. They left their love. And we have to ask, how does that happen? How do you lose your love for God and his people? And while there's probably not just one factor, let me suggest one thing. Could it be that someone could get so focused on doctrine and protecting the truth that they become too inwardly focused? 
In other words, could you get so scared of the world and of its teachings that you're worried what might happen if you convert someone and they have differing viewpoints to you? Or if they have false doctrine that hasn't been weeded out quite yet? That could pretty easily happen, right? And obviously we need to protect the truth. We need to weed out false doctrine. And I'm not saying that we can let that go for a second. But we can't lose our first love either. We can't focus on the truth so much that we forget to live it out. We can't put on our little badge that says, I'm the church, I know the truth, and I'm not going to let any of you worldly people get too close to me. Because then we lose our love. We forget that Jesus tells us that we need to be reflecting his love into the world. And that's not just the preacher. That's not just the elders. That's the work of all Christians. And what's the consequence if we don't do that? Look back with me in Revelation chapter 2 verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent And do the works that you did at first. Because if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does that mean? That Jesus is going to remove their lampstand. Well, if you remember, we saw earlier in the lesson here in chapter 1. The lampstands are the churches of God. They're God's people. They are in his presence. So if we become this inward-focused people, if we lose our love for God and for man, we will be taken out of the presence of Jesus. We will not be his people anymore. And that makes sense, right? Because Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, verses that we all know well. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Say, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt that's lost its saltiness will be thrown out. A light that is hidden, a lampstand that refuses to shine will be removed. It's useless. It will be thrown away. We can't refuse to shine our light. We have to keep God's love in us and show it to those around us or we will be useless to our Lord. So what happens if they choose to repent? If they choose to repent, let's look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The Spirit says if you repent, if you regain that first love, if you endure and conquer the tree of life, the blessings of God for eternity, His presence forever, 
That's what the Ephesians were striving for. That's what we are striving for. That's what every Christian everywhere of all time is striving for. Being in the presence of God eternally. And that's the vision. It's a pretty simple message, but it's really tough to do. So let's kind of go back through and hit the highlights again and see what our Lord Jesus has to say to the church of Ephesus and to us. And the first application is to copy the Ephesians example of endurance. As we already discussed, we live in a world that would love nothing more sometimes than to take you away from God. And maybe that's not always to just, you know, turn you into an atheist immediately. But sometimes maybe it takes the form of just slowly breaking you down. Come on, you don't really believe that's a sin, do you? That's pretty bigoted. Or maybe it's something more like, you know all your friends are going to hang out and you haven't seen them in a while, but they're going to go bar hopping. Are you going to support that? Are you, and sometimes we risk our social statuses, our connection to our friends, our connection to the culture. And maybe sometimes we even risk damage to our businesses. And the church at Ephesus felt all of those things. And Jesus saw that. And Jesus raised them up for their endurance. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 says it this way. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's the same message, right? The world, Satan through the world, is trying to get you to compromise your faith, just to be like everyone else around you, to assimilate. But you have to endure. Rely on the brethren. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Hold fast to the truth. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. That's what Paul said to the Ephesians. And they held on to it. They endured when their evil day came. And we must do the same. To hold fast to the truth and endure for God. Because someday the evil day will come in your life. For some of you, maybe it's already here. Where the world will try to drag you away from what you know the Bible says. Or maybe, God forbid, someone like the Nicolaitans from someone within the church will distort the word and try to make it say what you know it doesn't. You have to be like the Ephesians. You have to endure patiently. The second application here, the one I've already harped on a hundred times, but I think it deserves a hundred and one. Do not abandon your first love. Don't do it. Love God. Keep his commandments. Love your brother, your fellow man, and try desperately to bring everyone you can into God's light. 
In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus lists the signs of the end times. And just jumping into that, he says in verses 12 through 14, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This mirrors in many ways what we saw in Ephesus. Many will have their love grow cold, but many will endure. And they will endure by, they will show their first love by preaching the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. That's one way that Jesus says that we show love. And think of it this way. For whatever reason, you're on a ship that's sinking. And you're the only one that seems to notice. You could kind of awkwardly walk by everyone and say, hey, pardon me. Excuse me. Hey, uh, I think the boat's kind of sinking, I think, maybe. And if they didn't respond well or if they got upset with you, you could kind of leave on the lifeboat and say, man, I really wish they knew what I knew. If only they knew what I knew, they'd be right here with me. But that's not what you would do, right? Of course not. You'd be scrambling, yes, trying to save yourself, but also trying to save as many others as you can, trying to bring them to life and to deliverance. Everyone, especially your loved ones. And we know the world is going under. It's a sinking ship. Everyone that you know, if they're left in the world, they're left in a sinking ship. But we can help bring them to salvation. We can help bring them to deliverance because we know that whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know where the lifeboats are. Get people there. Help save them. And if you don't want to do that, maybe we need to really evaluate if we have the love that we're called to have by Jesus, let's strive for his perfect love. Do not lose your love. Because all of this has consequences. As we read in Revelation 2, we're choosing between the tree of life, God's eternal blessings, or being snuffed out and thrown away. Left in the streets to be trampled on. That's what this means. And I've seen too many churches full of good people, full of strong Christians that hold on to the truth with a vice grip. Their doctrine is airtight and they have unity in the scripture. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing. But they forget God's love. They don't show God's love to others. They've lost their first love. And if you do that, and you don't repent, you will not be granted the tree of life. You will not get the presence of God eternally. That's the final message to the Ephesians, and that's the message to us as well. Let us pray and then be dismissed to our classes. Father, we want to follow you. Help us hold to your truth. Father, we want to be like you. 
Help us to always love you and your creation, our fellow man. In truth and in spirit, we pray. Amen.